morning, church. Good to see you on this Lord's Day. It is October 31st of 2021, and God is on his throne today, and all of God's people said, amen. What a joy it is to welcome you to worship together. If you're here today for the first time, we extend a warm welcome to you. If you're checking in online for the first time today, we also welcome you to this moment of of worship together. Hey, you've heard a, a lot of announcements, one more, and this is to the men of our church. On the first Monday of every month, we gather together now. And we had such a fantastic start last month. Tomorrow is November 1st, All Saints Day, 8 o'clock, tomorrow night. We're going to gather as the men of our church. And we had, again, such a wonderful first gathering last month. Guys, let's not lose momentum. And so really my appeal, I urge you to be with us tomorrow night, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock. We'll try to end on the dot, okay? And come and be with us tomorrow evening. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go with me, if you will, to Joshua chapter 8. The 8th chapter of the book of Joshua as we continue our series through this book. Joshua chapter 8 this morning. And Father, we're grateful for your word. And now, as always, I pray that you will stand in my body and think with my mind and speak through my mouth all the things that you would have us hear and say and do. To the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Living the Christian life is unpretentiously difficult. There's a word for you. It is unpretentiously difficult. It is unpretentious because it is all about one thing. It is difficult because it all comes down to whom you will give your unconditional obedience. Unpretentiously difficult. Living the Christian life can be summed up in a single question. Will you do what God says. If you performed a Google search on obedience, you would find that beyond its definition, the most popular hits fall into two or three categories. There's dog obedience, there's obedience to God, and then there is the Milgram experiments. In the 1960s, Stanley Milgram, a Ph.D. student at Yale University, started a series of experiments called Obedience to Authority. And participants included a learner, a teacher, an experimenter wearing a white coat. And the white coat experimenter represented the voice of authority. And the teachers, who were ordinary people like you and me, We're supposed to administer electric shocks starting at 15 volts and then increasing to a maximum of 450 volts whenever the questioner got a question wrong. The year was, this was done in the year of my birth. I look at that picture and it seems so prehistoric, which tells me something, I guess. The teachers didn't know it. But the learners were actually paid actors. And when they received the shock, they would cry and groan. But in Milgram's experiment, most 
of the teachers obeyed the instructions of the experimenter and kept on increasing the shock levels. Over two-thirds of the teachers kept obeying the experimenter in the white coat until they, they punished the learners with, with a shock volt of 450 volts, the maximum amount. Milgram's experiments, as interpreted by others, suggest that obedience is a concept that hurts people. We live in a culture that celebrates the rebel. We applaud the renegade. And it's precisely at this point that the Christian faith is so radically counter-cultural. Many people would even suggest that obedience, blind obedience to an unseen God, is contemptible. But the truth is, each of us has a master, whether we admit it or not. And your master may be yourself, it may be your parent, it may be a supervisor, a teacher, a coach, but each of us has a master. The question we want to talk about this morning is, who is yours? And more importantly, do you have the right one? The secret to the Christian life is to bend our will to the will of God. And when we understand what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, we want to live for him, and we want to wholly love him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. You'll keep my commandments. And when you love Jesus, it changes everything about you, your motivations, your, your actions, your attitudes. So to be a Christian is to live a life of obedience that is sometimes painful but always beautiful. The book of Joshua is about a new beginning for the people of Israel. They had entered the promised land, and in their first battle on Canaanite soil, the battle against Jericho, they witnessed the collapse of that city's walls and a remarkable display of divine power. But in their very next military event against a smaller town, the town of Ai, they were sur surprised by an ambush. 36 Israelite soldiers were killed, and they fled in defeat. It turned out that the plundering sin of one man by the name of Achan had devastating consequences for the entire nation. And at the end of chapter 7, Israel was literally and metaphorically in the Valley of Achor, which, when translated, means the Valley of Trouble. While we certainly learn more from our failures than our successes, and that's certainly true in my own life, Joshua, at this point, must have been awfully discouraged and terribly apprehensive about what to do next. And that's why the opening words of, of chapter 8 of Joshua must have fallen like a, like a wonderful boon to him. The opening words of chapter 8 read, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. God was giving Joshua and the people of Israel a second chance. God said, I'm going to give you another opportunity to take a crack at Ai, and this time your victory will not be in doubt. You know, even after we have failed, 
maybe even after we have sinned miserably and have disappointed God, as we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and offer us a new beginning. I think I'm speaking to a lot of you when I say this morning, friends, if you have failed, don't let anyone incarcerate you in a prison of futility or uselessness. You may have to face the consequences of your failure, but God is always the God of second chances. In Jonah chapter 1, the Lord told Jonah, the prophet, to go to Nineveh and preach. And you know the story. Jonah did exactly the opposite, running in completely the other direction. And he boards a ship that while at sea faces a significant storm in which he knew that storm was God's means of catching him. And he asked to be thrown overboard, and a giant fish, maybe a whale, inhaled him for three days and three nights, keeping him in the belly of that great fish until it expelled him on dry ground. And then Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 begins, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, what? A second time. God is the God of second chances. God is the God of new beginnings. He does not begrudge giving you a fresh new start. And so if you have failed... Confess your failure. Trust in his forgiveness and get back in the game. So having failed the first time, it's time for a rematch against Ai in Joshua chapter 8. And God says to Joshua, don't be depressed. Don't be tentative or timid for look what I have given to you. Now let me set up what follows. Because the first 29 verses of Joshua chapter (laughs) 8... contain detailed battle plans and the execution of those plans and all of its gory reality. In fact, Joshua chapter 8 is one of the most descriptive battle scenes in all of the Bible. And I don't know about you. I don't know if you like reading about battle plans and outcomes. I enjoy reading about the Civil War and our nation's most dire conflict. But to be honest with you, I don't geek out on Grant's tactics at Vicksburg or, or the location of Stonewall Jackson's brigade at Chancellorsville. I just really don't enjoy battle scenes all that much. I like engaging with the personalities of war, but I'm not a fan of the battles. So that's fair warning, okay? Because that's where we're going in Joshua chapter 8 this morning. And I want to read all the way through verse 29, make a few comments along the way, and then ask you a very important question. So those of you, again, who are a little wary of battle scenes, here we go. A good way to feel the action here is, is especially if you do like the clash and sound of battle, is to imagine yourself present at the time. Verse 1, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear And do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as you plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. 
Now, if you look at the screen, I think quickly, I have a map up there that will give you a sense of where AI is located. That red kind of explosive little star right there is is the spot of this strategic action. God's promise before the second battle of Ai is similar to what he said before the battle of Jericho. But this time, the plan of attack would be much more akin to conventional warfare. Also, don't miss the extraordinary exception that God makes for this battle. Like Jericho, its structures were to be burned, its inhabitants were to be killed. But an exception is made this time, which permits the Israelites to keep the livestock and some of its spoils. If only Achan had waited a little bit longer. Hmm. Now, if your head wants to do a 360, and you're wondering why they could not take the spoil before, but now it's okay, it all has to do with who's giving the orders. God makes the rules, and he also gets to make the exceptions. Our response should always be one of obedience. When God says stop, we stop. When he says go, we go. Now, let's follow the strategy of the battle beginning in verse 3 or 4. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. So Joshua says, let's repeat what we did the last time. And they'll think the same thing is happening. Verse 6, and they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. And then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. Now, there were five different ways to take a fortified city in the ancient world. And the first way was to climb over its walls. Except you just don't want to be the very first person over the wall in a ladder because the survival rate is not that great. A second way was to tunnel under. David, for instance, when he attacked and conquered the city of Jerusalem for the very first time, came up under a spring and entered into the city of Jerusalem, coming up out of the water. And if you traveled with me to Israel, we saw that very spring that David and his men entered. A third way was to attack the walls with battering rams and then set it on fire. A fourth way was to lay siege to the city, cut off all of its exits, and starve the people into surrender like the Romans did to the Jews at Masada. A fifth way, which is the way here, was to draw the soldiers of a city out by pretense and set an ambush. And that, In conventional warfare terms, is exactly what God tells Joshua to do here. He takes all the fighting men, and under the cloak of darkness, he sets an ambush against Ai. He shrewdly capitalizes on his previous defeat by repeating the same tactical mistake, at least the same mistake that the men of Ai would think he was committing, and therefore positioning his troops at a time and at a place at the town's gates where victory would be sure. 
This time, however, he, he hides a, a much larger force behind the town on the northern border of, of Ai. So when the armed forces of Ai come out to face those retreating Israelites, they left the city unprotected, and that much larger force behind the city was able then to come in, take the city, set fire to it, and destroy it. Verse 9 goes on to say, so Joshua sent them out. And they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up. He and the elders of Israel before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him and went up drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So those cities were close in proximity. Verse 13, so they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city, and its rear guard was of the west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet, him, to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know, that's the king and his men, that there was ambush set against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. So the plan works brilliantly. The men of Ai realize what it has happened, but they realize it way too late. The city is set on fire. The pursuers become the pursued, and there is no escape. Now watch what God has Joshua do, picking up the story in verse 18. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, and the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers." And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was none left that had survived or escaped. During that battle, Joshua could be seen holding his javelin high in his hand until the enemy was defeated. Now, if you know your Old Testament, that may be a very familiar scene to you. Because in Exodus chapter 17, the Israelites are fighting the Amalekites. And God told Moses that during the battle, he was to hold his rod high in the air, extending it upwards 
And whenever Moses held that rod high in the air, the, the favor, the tide of war shifted towards the Israelites. But the moment his staff began to droop, the momentum would move to the Amalekites. And when Moses' arms were too tired so that he could no longer hold up that rod, two men then came and positioned themselves under Moses' arms and held them up for him. One was a man by the name of Hur, and the other one was a man by the name of Joshua. And now, Joshua's turn is to hold his rod, to hold his javelin high. What is God doing? God is vindicating Joshua and making him the new Moses. Joshua is still, even after the defeat of Ai the first time, he is God's man to lead his people. He's like this new Moses, and Joshua's javelin was a signal to his men. The soldiers rush in and take the city. The king of Ai is captured, and he is brought to Joshua. I told you, this is it in all of its gory reality. So we read in verse 23, but the king of Ai they took alive. And brought him near to Joshua. And when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Two weeks ago, we spoke about the fact that the sin of the Amorites, the sin of the Canaanites, had reached its high-level mark. It had reached the ceiling. And for 400 years, God has been warning the Canaanites, destruction will come if you do not turn. Destruction will come if you do not repent. They did not repent, and destruction came. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua, verse 28, burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there till this day. I tried to warn you, and after reading through verse 29, I said I had a very important question I wanted to ask you, and here's the question. Why is all of this here? With all of the details of war, which are so untypical for a story in the Bible. Again, one of the most detailed scenes of battle you'll find anywhere in Scripture. Why did God give 29 verses in his word about a battle plan and all of the horror of its implementation. And I can only think of one compelling reason. He wanted to test their obedience down to the tiniest detail. 
And that's the great lesson of those 29 verses for us. God is saying to you and me, I want to see if you will obey me all the way down to the most minute detail of your life. And when God speaks, whenever he speaks with such precision, it's because he wants to see if we will wholly obey him. It's a test. Noah, I want you to build an ark. And even though you've never seen a drop of rain, I want you to do this because an epic flood is coming. Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, and sacrifice him on the mountain where I will show you. It was a test. Naaman, you have leprosy for which there is no cure. And I know this sounds crazy, but I want you to go to the Jordan River and bathe in it seven times. Widow of Zarephath, I know you are down to your final meal, but I I want you to take a prophet into your home and I want you to feed him every single day that he is with you. Obey him all the way down to the tiniest detail. Even if obedience doesn't make sense. So let's return to Joshua's javelin for a moment. The Israelites were victorious as long as Joshua held up his javelin. And I can imagine Joshua asking the Lord, how long do I have to hold this thing up in the air? Answer, hold it as high as you can until it hurts. And God is saying to you and me, obey me. And sometimes you'll have to obey me until it hurts. In Philippians chapter 2, we read that Jesus being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's obedience. Friends, obedience in a nutshell is death. Obedience is death to my flesh. Obedience is death to my feelings. Obedience is death to my will. God is asking you and me today, will you obey me all the way down to the dotted I and crossed T? I know that you think that prayer is something that other people do. But I want you to get up 15 minutes earlier every day and pray for others and pray for your community and and pray for your family and pray for the day that is set before you. I, I know your time is limited, but you need to be in community. You need to be strengthening one another as they strengthen you, and and you need to be a part of a growth group, or you need to be a part of a Bible study. I know your hormones are raging, but I want you to turn all of that energy into living for me in purity and holiness. I know your coworkers think you're crazy if you do this, but you need to share your faith with them. I know that you were deeply hurt by your stepfather, but I want you to let go of all of that bitterness and forgive. I know you think you're tough, but I want you to say 
I'm sorry to all of the people that you have hurt physically and especially emotionally. I know inflation is rising and the cost of living is increasing and the media is causing panic, but I want you to give to me as I have commanded. In any marriage and in any relationship for that matter, when you just want the words to fly and the Holy Spirit says to you, be careful about what you are going to say next. You have about a split second to answer the question, who are you going to obey? Living the Christian life is unpretentiously difficult. It can be boiled down to this one issue, will you do what God says? We are to read God's word and then do what he says down to the last letter. We may push back and say, it's too messy, it's too inconvenient, it's too costly, it's too long. And God says, I want, I want you to obey me, even when it hurts. I want you to notice one more thing before we move on. And we are moving on. The church today does not, does not fight physical battles, military battles, like the ancient people of Israel did. But make no mistake about it, we are engaged in a great spiritual battle. It is a battle with moral implications. It is a battle with political implications, but it is ultimately a spiritual battle, and spiritual battles are fought with spiritual weapons. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, the Apostle Paul says, but spiritual. They are mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds, of casting down imaginations. Do you believe that, church? There is nothing more powerful than the spiritual weapons that God has deposited into our hands and into our lives. And the weapons that God has given to us are far more superior to any weapon the world has in its arsenal. And there are very, very vocal voices today that are saying that we need, as the church, to use different kinds of weapons to wage warfare today. But if we pick up and fight with weapons other than the ones that God has approved, we will lose. God has selected the weapons he has given us so that we will never forget that the battle belongs to him. Our battles, our weapons seem weak, but again, they are mighty in God. And the gates of hell will march on those and it will stomp on those who use the weapons of the world. You are not to trust in anything else but in the God who is the Lord of his church. I hope you're not losing confidence in the weapons that God has given you. The authority of his word, the power of prayer, the spirit of worship, the fruit of the spirit, the holiness of your own life. Those are the weapons of our warfare.
And these are the weapons that have conquered and are still conquering today. I know some people don't like military language like that. The Bible uses that kind of language. But the conquering that we're talking about is seeing men and women's hearts conquered by the love of God. So how could we ever pick up weapons that fight contrary to his ways and his will and his purpose? So the king of Ai is dead. We read how they hung on a tree until evening and then took down his body before sundown and dumped it outside the city. In a passage that is really difficult to read, even here, it points to Jesus. Because I can't help but read that description of what they did to the king of Ai and see how they also took Jesus, just like they did this king. They hung his body from a tree. Deuteronomy says, cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree. Jesus became a curse for us. He was suspended between heaven and earth, and they mocked him. But as Jesus hung from that tree, what was he doing? But he was bearing our shame, and his death was the public shaming that we all deserved. And his body was taken down from that cross before sunset in the very same way as the king of Ai. And then, if you will, tossed out the city, buried in a borrowed tomb. And even in this very strange battle-oriented passage, we get a glimpse of the gospel. The Israelites win the rematch. So how do they celebrate? Maybe like victorious soldiers of the past, they would host a, a massive feast and eat till their hearts were content. No, they don't put on a giant feast. You know what they do? They hold a worship service, but not near the city of Ai. Because in the final six verses of Joshua chapter 8, Joshua leads the Israelites to a very special place to do something very wonderful. When we come to verse 30, the people of Israel have hiked up all the way to the valley of Shechem, which is about 20 miles north of Ai. The valley of Shechem. What's so special about this place? Well, it was right here some 600 years before that God promised to Abraham the whole land of Canaan. It was right here at that very spot in Shechem that Abraham built his first altar to God. It was right here in that very spot that Jacob's well was dug, that nourished and gave water to Jacob and his family for years. It was right here 1,400 years later that Jesus would have an encounter with a woman of Samaria and he would offer her living water. The Valley of Shechem. God is calling Abraham's great, great, great grandchildren back to Shechem to commemorate the fulfillment of his promise. And the valley of Shechem is is cradled between two mountains. There is the Mount of Gerizim in Samaria. It's considered the most sacred spot on the planet to the Samaritans. Some 800 Samaritans are still living in that area today. They actually believe that the Garden of Eden was located on Mount Gerizim. They have no proof. That's just their conclusion. There's Mount Gerizim 
on one side of the valley, and then there's Mount Ebal on the other. Mount Ebal is the highest mountain in the valley of Shechem. Mount Gerizim is the second highest. Why is, why is this important? And why have they come here? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 7, 27, the Israelites are still in the wilderness. They have not yet crossed the Jordan River. And Moses is alive still, and he is standing before his people, and he says, one day you're going to enter into the promised land. And getting there won't be easy, and there are fortified cities and massive walls, and there are probably giants in the land. They will need to be defeated. But when you enter the land, and God gives you victory, and you control the heart of the country, I want you to travel north, where you will find two mountains standing in close proximity to one another, to one another and I want you to worship me there. And so the moment the Israelites are victorious over Ai, what does Joshua do? He knows exactly what he needs to do. He takes the people of Israel and they go north. They are in the middle of conquering this land, but they travel 20 miles north to worship and to read the word of God. We pick up the story in Joshua chapter 8, verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. That's obedience. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered it on burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Moses told them to build an altar and make sacrifices, and so they built an altar and made sacrifices. And the sacrifices remind them that they are the people of God, not on the basis of anything that they have done, but on the basis of the fact that God, through his sacrifice, has atoned for their sins. That's how any person ever becomes a member of God's family, is that we know that the atonement of someone else has paid the price for our entrance. Verse 32, and in there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. I don't know how much they wrote on those stones. It might have just been the Ten Commandments. It might have been more. But the law was written on those stones, on Mount Ebal. And then in one of the most dramatic moments of the Old Testament, the people of Israel are divided into two groups. Verse 33, and all Israel sojourner, That's immigrant, alien, brought into the family as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on the opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he had read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Imagine the scene. That the people of Israel must have been numbered when it comes to men, women, and children and sojourners into the millions at this point. And half of the people gather 
at Mount Ebal and recite the curses of the law. And the other half congregate near Gerizim and they recite its blessings. And in between them in the valley of Shechem is the, is the Ark of the Covenant symbolizing the presence of God. And the setting with its natural acoustics created this special, spectacular moment that would echo in their memories for, 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 for decades to come. From Mount Gerizim, God's word says, obey me. And I will give you life and food and abundance and peace. And then from Mount Ebal across the valley, they would hear the curses of the law. But if you don't obey me, I will scatter you among the nations. And on that day, the people of Israel had to decide where they stood. Would they stand with blessing and obedience? Or would they inherit curses because of their disobedience? And the question comes to us with such residents, where do you stand? On the Mount of Blessing or the Mount of Cursing? Because victory comes through the portal of obedience. We cannot negotiate our life on our terms do things our own way, and then expect to live under the favor of God. So it comes down to this issue every single day for us. Whose voice will you listen to? Who are you obeying? Which master are you following? I've waited until now to say, It's October 31st, 2021, Reformation Day. I love it when it falls on a Sunday. Do you know what today is? And if you say Halloween in my presence, I will just hang my head. On October 31st, 1517, a stocky Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther a man who was studying to be a lawyer but who panicked in the midst of a thunderstorm and thought that the lightning that was striking nearby would kill him, cries out to God to save him, and if God saved him, he would become a monk. After the storm ended, he found himself in the cell of a monastery. And disturbed by the corrupt practices inside the church, he wrote down 95 theses, nailed them to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, triggering the Protestant Reformation 504 years ago today. I don't know what you're going to do tonight, but I think I'm gathering 95 Reese's and we'll nail them to my door. Thanks for getting that. All kinds of slogans came out of the Reformation. One of them was Semper Reformanda, always reforming. Always reforming to what? Well, always reforming our lives, our church, our practices, all that we are to the word of God. Separ reformanda is always about bending your will to the will of God. So that the great question of the Reformation which was, how do I know if I am saved? Answer from Luther and those who recovered the gospel 500 years ago was to look to Christ who atoned for our sins, who died in our place, 
and bend your will to the will of God. And I am so glad that God does not cause me to atone for my own sins because I couldn't. And Jesus says, I've got you covered. And then once we know that Christ covers us and we begin to live for him, when we sin, there's brokenness, there's confession, there's renewal, there is resolve to walk the road of repentance. And then God says to us, because of the mercy he has shown to us in Christ, my mercy is greater than your mess. And God's grace then becomes a stimulus for us to live in holiness. He energizes me towards obedience. That's Semper Raphamanda, always bending my will to God's will. If you are not a follower of Jesus today, I urge you to invite Jesus Christ to be the master of your life. And he will come in and forgive you of all of your sin and change you from the inside out so that your great desire will be to live for him. And if you are a follower of Jesus today, and yet there are areas of your life where you are still doing your own thing and calling your own shots right now, would you resolve, as we should every day of our lives, to bend our wills to the will of God? always reforming to his glory. Let's pray. Well, Father, we always come to a moment at the end of a message like this and still need to say, thank you for your word. And for this journey through this marvelous chapter that was filled with battle scenes that can be uncomfortable. And yet, Father, in the heart of it, at its crux, is this, this matter, this issue of obedience. How you've brought home that message very clear to us. That having, having been redeemed by the blood of Christ, having experienced the full atonement of, of our sins through his death on the cross, now, Father, you call us as the people of God, to follow you, to love you, to live for you all the days of our lives, every single day, bending the knee and saying, not my will, but your will be done. Father, for anyone who this morning wants to take that step of entering into the family of God, you issue the invitation You bring forth the response. So for anyone today, may Father, right now, in in the very echo of their minds or in the words that they express, when asked, Father, will you come into my life and be my master? Will you come in and completely remake from the inside out? This we pray, the one who loved us and rescued us. In Jesus we ask, amen.
Let me invite you to stand.